This message was recorded at North 2013, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Now, I ask myself the question, why is it that people are unchanged after experiencing the presence of God? We're talking about the presence of God in this conference. A number of speakers have alluded to it, and it's a subject that's very dear to my heart. And so I noticed back years ago after uh, what God did in Toronto, I noticed that a lot of people who had experienced a, you know, a major impact from the presence of God, it just seemed to drain right off, and in fact they were worse after than before they had begun. James chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4. So I want to talk about how we receive the Holy Spirit this morning. It is, I'm still saying, I mean, the heading of life in the Spirit, you could talk about just about anything, to be honest. But uh, I think I'm going to be faithful to it. James chapter 4 and verse 3 and 4 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. You ask and don't receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it in your passions, you adulterous people. Now, I ask the question, is it possible to ask for, James is talking about asking for things, but with wrong motives, right? But is it possible to ask for the presence of God, but with wrong motives? You ever thought about that? Is that possible? Well, I think it is possible. And if it is possible, then he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly, you ask for something with wrong motives, to spend it on your passions. So then I ask the question, what does it mean to spend the presence of God on your passions? Just think about it for a minute. What does it mean to spend the presence of God on your passions? And I think... The answer is somewhere in the ballpark of coming to God, not as givers, but as takers. So we approach God sometimes, if we're honest, as consumers. We live in a consumer society, don't we? People in our culture, over on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, are are very consumeristic when it comes to church. They want the church, a full-service church, with a nice building, air-conditioned in the summer. Not an issue really you have to bother about much here. Um, and uh, they want uh, a full-service ministry to every age group, and etc. And they want a preacher that will make them feel good. Make them feel good. I never majored in that topic myself. They want... God, we want God to make us feel better. We want God to solve our problems. We want God to make us happy. We don't want to have to carry the cross. We don't want to have to become givers of life. And if that's our heart, it makes us an adulterous people. That's what James says, isn't it? You're asking for the wrong thing, or you're asking maybe for the right thing, but with the wrong motives, in order to spend it in your passions. You adulterous people. So that, if we come to God asking for his presence, but with the wrong motives, then it makes us an adulterous people. So then I ask the question, I ask too many questions to get myself into trouble, but I ask myself the question, what is an adulterous people? Well, that's that's a serious matter. Adultery is being married to one person while seeking pleasure in another. So... Transferring it over to our relationship with God, when we approach God with the wrong motives, when we approach God to make him our servant and provide us with pleasure, comfort, happiness, meet my needs, God, then I am coming with an adulterous heart. I am actually not coming with a purity of desire to be married to and serve him alone. I have mixed motives. And James says, that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Now, when I was a little younger than I am now, I heard a teaching. Matter of fact, I think it was Tony Fitzgerald and Ben Callender. Back in those, I know, my memory reaches back that far. 
I was about five and Jonathan was about 15 at the time. So, <laughs> oh no, I got that reversed, I think. Um, and the teaching was on nets that break and nets that hold the catch. You know the two stories of Jesus uh, where, first of all, they're, they're told to let their nets down and the nets began to break, couldn't hold the catch. And then after the resurrection, the same thing happens, but this time the nets held the catch. And God wants us to have nets that hold the catch. Now, I look at people who receive the presence of God, and then it seems to leak out. And as I said, they're left no better off, maybe worse off than than where they were before. So I want to know, how can the nets of my heart hold the catch when it comes to the presence of God? Wouldn't you like to do that? You want to be able to hold the catch. You don't want to lose it. And I think the key is this. It's coming to God with a right heart. Exodus 23 and 15 says, No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Matter of fact, it's repeated twice in Deuteronomy 16 and Exodus 34. So the same phrase comes at least three times in the Bible. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. He's talking about worship, isn't he? You come into the presence of God. That was to the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle, to the Holy of Holies and so on, whatever office you held. No one, they were commanded to appear before God on a regular basis, but no one could come empty-handed into the presence of the Lord. Now, how do I come? What does it mean for me to come into the presence of God not empty-handed? What do I come with? Well, I come with worship. Isn't that what I come with? You read the book of Revelation, you'll find that seems to be the main activity of heaven, is worship. And so we better learn to do it now. My worship is what I have to give God. God doesn't need anything else. Theoretically, I suppose he doesn't even need my worship, but he desires it. But what God really wants when I come before him is my worship. If I don't come with worship then anything else I bring, an offering or good works or whatever, really doesn't amount to anything. So what I need to do is to come with worship so that I'm not coming before him empty-handed. And so the place of my preparation is in my personal relationship with the Lord. I have to learn to enter the presence of God in order to worship him. Now, I'm trying to make an application, or I'm going to make an application here, to the receiving of the presence of God, which normally occurs in a corporate setting. It's something that we expect to happen when we come to a big conference like this, isn't it? Hmm? We expect that. Uh, we, we expect it, or should expect it, on church on Sunday morning. Um, but uh, when we come to a special conference, we expect more. Or then we hear... God has shown up in this place or that place, and we all get in the car or on the plane and rush off to that place because we expect God to show up. But we have to learn to encounter God in our personal relationship with him. That is the place where there's no crowd to support us. There's no musicians. There's no special personalities. There's not even sound people. There's only you or me and him. Matthew 6, verse 6 says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The secret place, the place where you meet alone with God, I don't care whether it's in a room, I don't care whether it's down by the waterfront as it is the place that I go, I don't care whether you go sit in your car or whatever you do, you have to have a secret place with God where you go and you can shut the door behind you and there's nobody else there and that is the place where you encounter God. There's no support network for you. You're not going to go into a crowd and be lifted up by the atmosphere or the emotions or the wonderful music or the preaching or the ministry team or people who are, you know, praying for you. No, there's just you and God. And it's that's the place it says that your Father will reward you. You know what that means? That's the place where His presence comes. You don't have to get in a plane and go to the latest charismatic hot spot. 
You don't have to, well, I was going to say you don't have to even go to church on Sunday morning, but that put me out of business. So you do have to go to church on Sunday morning. It's very important to go to church on Sunday morning. But by the time you have met with the Lord, you've got something to give in church on Sunday morning. If you have a whole church full of people who haven't talked to the Lord since last Sunday, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be dead in church. Dead. I mean, I'd rather go somewhere else where somebody said, used to say, well, if I wasn't the pastor and paid to turn up, I wouldn't even show up. But when there are people who have spent time in the secret place, they bring the presence with them. Uh, somebody I knew, I can't remember who it was, but somebody I knew had, had uh, attended C.S. Lewis's lectures at Oxford University, and they said that he began lecturing before he entered the room. And so you, even if you were right on time, and he was very punctual, you always missed the first part because he started lecturing in the hallway outside the lecture theater. And by the time he hit the room, he was moving. And I think that that's how we're supposed to be with God. By the time you hit the corporate gathering, whether it's a small group, whether it's a church service, whether it's a conference, whatever it is, you are already in third or fourth gear at least, and you're moving up fast. So the secret place, that's where the reward of God comes. Hebrews 6 and verse 7 says, and by the way, I do have notes for this, which I don't know, will appear in some website anyway, or I'll put them in my own if, uh, because they may be helpful to you. Hebrews 6 and 7 says, Land that has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Let me read that one more time. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. I want to receive a blessing from God. Look, I'm not going to say I'm just in this for whatever. I'm in this to get blessed. <laughs> I guess I'm, is there anybody else here? I mean, I want the blessing of God, don't you? I don't want to go, if I want the blessing of God, I just, oh, I could name a few denominations, I just go to them and die. I'm here because I want to know God and to know his presence. It's just that I want my heart to be right. I want to come to God as a giver. When I got married, I didn't get married just for what my wife could give to me. I got married for what I could give to her. She got married me for what she could give to me. Now we've got a healthy marriage. The problem with so many marriages is that both partners have a giant straw. They're sucking out of the, their spouse, and then they suck each other dry. And guess what? Some churches are like that. That can happen. So I want to come to give to God, and then he will give to me. His presence is the greatest blessing that he can give. He wants us to desire that. But the key to receiving the blessing of God and containing the blessing so I don't lose the catch of the blessing is the extent to which I prepare the ground of my heart for his presence. When there isn't all those other supporting actors in the, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, situation, to all those people that are there to give for me and so on. It's I am here to give to him. And this kind of person that comes to God with that attitude. And they are people, Hebrews chapter 6 says, whose hearts bear a crop for others. Because it says that the land that has drunk the rain, that's my heart, that's your heart, and produces a crop, that's our heart and your heart, we become, here's the next phrase, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Well, whose sake is, who is he talking about? Others, Right? The crop of my heart, out of my worship of God, is to become useful, not for me, but for those for whose sake it is cultivated. That's all the people that God has put in my life, saved and unsaved, that I am to lay my life down for in service. I want to bear a crop for people out there. My life is cultivated, not for my own sake, that's the bless me that's just the, that's the wrong attitude. That's God. I'm just here for you to give to me, and I'm here. And if you approach God that way, you'll approach everybody else in the church that way. No, I'm here to give to you, Lord. 
And, and if you do that, then you will find that your life becomes useful to people around you. Your life is cultivated not for yourself, but for others. The presence of God in our lives, I'm bringing it back to this theme of the presence of God, the presence of God in our lives is supposed to enable us to give to other people. So the more we are full of the presence of God, being drunk in the Spirit is not just so that we can be drunk in the Spirit. If we get drunk in the Spirit, then it is supposed to be an energizing so that when we come out of that state, we are more enabled and better able to serve and lay our life down for the people around us. Now, what happens when we enter the house of the Lord empty-handed? See, we come without personal worship. We come with a desire to receive, but with no intention to give. We want to receive from the musicians. We want to receive from the other people around us who are worshiping. We want to receive from that atmosphere that's created. We want to receive from the preaching. We want to receive from the ministry team, but we are not interested in... We're we're one giant straw to suck out of all those people. We have a heart that produces no crop for anybody else because we're too busy feeding ourselves. But if we really want to receive from God... We don't need all those other things or people. We're the type of person who is driven into the presence of God because you know you can't live without worshiping Him. When I get out of predicament, I go get in my car, I drive to a certain place, and I pray until the presence of God comes. I'm not kidding. And I'm in a predicament as often, if not more often, than most of you are. And I go and I start praying in the Spirit. I'll pray in tongues. As long as I have to, and I will not stop until his presence comes. And when his presence comes, everything changes. You start looking at things a little bit differently. You start realizing, well, he starts giving you faith. He starts showing you that things aren't as bad as you thought. He starts giving you the answers. He starts comforting you. He starts just reassuring you it's going to be okay. Just before the beginning of the seminar, brother and I were praying about a a crisis situation. And we've got to pray until we get a word from God and the presence of God comes, it's going to be okay. And you say, how is it going to be okay? I don't care. That's God's problem, not mine. As I always say, God has a problem. He thinks he's God. (laughs) That's one of my deepest lines. The fact is, he let him be God. Let him be God. You can't fix everything. What you can't, what he tells you to do to put things right, do. Obey. But the rest of it, don't, you'll just have a nervous breakdown, take everybody else down with you. Just let him be God. Your job is to pray and to worship. You, you can't wait till the next meeting. You can't wait till the next Sunday service. You can't wait till it's revival. You need God now. Go away and pray. Now, let me suggest to you that something happens in times of visitation to land that is unprepared. We have a mudslide expert with us this afternoon who will no doubt get up and correct me if I'm wrong. After the meeting, please, Professor. When dry ground is hit by a deluge, all that happens is massive erosion, right? It all runs off. The farmers at home, they like a dry, gentle rain because often in the summer we can get it very dry, the ground is parched, then there's this massive torrential, you know, 50 millimeters, 75 millimeters of rain or something, and it does no good whatsoever. It washes the soil down into the next farmer's field and washes your seed away. It floods the crops. No, you want nice, moist soil that you have a nice, gentle rain, and that's what does job. So when dry ground is hit by a deluge, all that happens is massive erosion. You lose more than you gain. And so people that come to church without having communicated with the Lord since the last Sunday meeting, they're looking for a weekly filling. It just drains off and doesn't soak in. And, uh, but people whose hearts are prepared do receive. Uh, I was thinking the other day, uh, in, uh, in, in Toronto, when we witnessed the early testimonies uh, 
almost all of the people who came were burned out pastors and leaders and their spouses. They were people who laid their lives down in giving. They were people at their wits' end. There were people one after the other after the other that were up on the platform saying, I was just about ready to give up. We were in breakdown. We'd given everything. Everything, you know, had fallen apart, and they were desperate for God. They, didn't, they weren't coming as consumers of religious experiences. They weren't coming to have a nice, happy, clappy feeling. They were coming because they were going to die if they didn't encounter God. Well, God will always meet people like that because they're givers of life, Right? They're givers. He'll always meet you. And those people were amazingly blessed. They spread blessing all over the world. But what followed was often marked by people who were looking for experiences. They were people that had a lot of dry and unprepared ground. They were people who were just looking for how God could energize them. They weren't looking for God, how God could energize them to give to other people. They were just looking for an experience. And, uh, and because the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit and he is God, they got experiences. Because if you come into the presence of God, I mean, ten Samaritans or lepers, oh man, someone help me. <laughs> ten, no, the one, you know, the ten were healed and the one came back. <clears throat> so what about the other nine? They got into the presence of Jesus and got healed, Right? Was their heart right? No. They didn't even have the courtesy to thank Jesus for their healing. If you come into the presence of Jesus, you're you're touching supernatural power. Things are going to happen. So you can have a time of visitation of the Holy Spirit. People can walk in off the street. And they can be totally unsaved. They can come in unsaved. They can go out unsaved. But in the midst of it, they can be touched by God. Just because God is God and his power is there. But it doesn't change their life. They're like people with dry ground. The water, when it comes on them, runs off. And because the soil gets eroded, they actually are left with less than they had before. I'm talking now about Christians who are coming to God with the wrong motivation. They're left with less than they had before. That leaves them more desperate for more experiences. And they get into a vicious cycle. In my opinion, they're not much different from an addiction. I am. I'm saying controversial things, and uh, I'm too, well, I'm getting too old. I probably am too old to really care anymore. I've got my guns out, and I'm shooting in every direction I can, and you can come after me if you want, but (laughs) I'm not giving up, and I'm so sick of this. I'm sick of it. It It is an offense to God. Nothing will destroy a move of God more quickly than religious experientialism. People seeking experiences. It'll wreck it. But the good side of it is nothing more effectively prepares the way for a visitation of God. We all want that, don't we? We all want a visitation of God. Nothing more effectively prepares the way than people who seek him for who he is. People who seek him in their rooms with the door shut behind them, crying out to God for his manifest presence. And prepared to take it to take everything he gives and take it away. Not and not just to church services, but to a, a needy world around us. One of my you know passions at the moment is God help me to move in the gifts of the Spirit outside the church. It's easy to prophesy in church. Anybody can do it. But seventy five percent of occurrences of the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament were outside the church. You say, oh no, 1 Corinthians 12. Well, just a minute. 1 Corinthians 12, that's church services. We know that's where he happens to list the gifts of the Spirit. He only does it because that's where they were having a problem with them, right? That's why. That's the context of it. If you go through the book of Acts, all the gifts of the Spirit are manifest in evangelism. 75% by... My advanced statistical analysis, and I'm hoping John Parker from Durham is not in the room to check my mathematics. Um, 75% of occurrences of gifts of the Spirit were outside the church in the world. Folks, we need to learn to take the presence of God outward. We need to learn to move in the prophetic, to move in gifts of healing, to move in word of knowledge, to move in deliverance in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, in our schools, in our universities, that's where the need is. 
actions. We can practice in each other. That's fine. But the real action is out there. And I'm preaching to myself every much as, that as much as I'm preaching to you. If that's where we're at and we desire to take the presence and the power of God and give that away, we can experience a different verse in James. The verse in James we started with, you ask and don't receive. That's something we want to avoid. But there's another great verse at the end of James that we do want to experience, and that is this. The prayer of a righteous man or woman has great power as it is working. I love that. It's ESV, and I I do uh, recommend the ESV. But the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. It's like yeast working through the dough. When you're praying... The power of God is working. It's percolating through your prayer. Jonathan and Fran made some great coffee this morning. It was, the coffee was percolating, and they squished the thing down and all the rest of it. I had tea, actually, so I only heard by rumor it was good. But that's, you know, it percolates through. And my prayers and your prayers are working. They're out there. Of course, it isn't the prayer. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who's working through your prayer. You're praying, you're worshiping, you're seeking God, and God is doing things through your praying. Right now, there's tons of prayers that you have prayed that God is operating things and changing things in the heavenly realms and in the lives of people that you aren't even yet aware of because of prayers you've prayed. Now, that's where we want to be, isn't it? In the place of power where our prayer changes the world around us. Now, I have to address another thing here, and that is that there are seasons in the moving of the Holy Spirit. And, excuse me, um, we have to be sensitive to that. We, not every time is a time of revival. I was born again in what was called the Jesus Movement, or the early Charismatic Movement. Back in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a powerful visitation of God which swept millions of people into the kingdom throughout North America. And it was a restoration. It was the beginning of restoration of the supernatural. Well, I shouldn't say that. It was because there were other seasons before that. But it was, um, it was a significant time of restoration of the supernatural, which in turn has led on to other things since. And uh, uh, so uh, I, I, I still remember being in that hockey arena on the south side of Chicago with 16,000 people in a 10,000-seat 10 10, arena, and people had been there all night for 24 hours camped out because Catherine Kuhlman was coming to town. And we sat there, and it was about 90-degree heat inside, and it was about two hours before she even appeared because she never came out into a meeting until she'd encountered the presence of God. She'd be crying out to God in the back room, God, meet me. And when the anointed came, she came out, surrounded by bodyguards. It was quite a sight. And then the wheelchairs, they started to empty. Rows of them. I've never been in a place where I have sensed or felt the love of God more powerfully, the compassion of Jesus. And that was a, that was a baptism by fire for me. And so, um, you know, uh, back in, back in uh, uh, January of 94, uh, we had friends, Stephen, Marilyn Hill, and they had another friend who lived with them, a lady called Carol Berg. And they, um, our friend John Arnott had, was running a, a small church plant on Dixie Road in Mississauga, an industrial unit, and he had a friend of his come, called Randy Clark come in to speak for a special meeting. And Carol was so overcome with the presence of God uh, in this meeting that she had to be physically carried out of the meeting. And uh, uh, nobody in that church had ever experienced anything like that before. But over the next year... Through the doors of that church in their different venues, over one million people passed through. And Carol was the first person to ever be carried out. And I had a preacher who was so overcome by the power of God, he had to be carried into a meeting. And you wonder whatever happened in between, and sometimes it wasn't much. (laughs) So that was a season. I was there. I remember John Arnott saying, you will tell your grandchildren. Could be any minute now. (laughs) No, darn. 
<laughs> you will tell your grandchildren that you were there. And I will. We heard the angelic choir. We saw extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit. I prayed for thousands of people. Uh, I, I had a word of, words of knowledge for one guy, and it, he was, worked for the CIA. As I love the story, because I, especially with the news of late, I got a great line out of it, which is, President Obama is listening to your phone calls and reading your emails, but we have more accurate access to more accurate information through the Holy Spirit than he does. And we do. But that was a season. We learn to live, we must learn to live in the seasons of visitation, but we also have to learn to live in the times in between. I've been years in the desert. Elaine and I have been years in the desert. Those are difficult times. But let me tell you, God has a purpose in every season. He has a purpose in every season. And let me say something else. The rain's always falling. you just got to catch it. You've got to be in the right place at the right time. You've got to have your heart prepared before God. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls upon it, Hebrews says. God's always sending the rain. It's often falling. The question is, are we plowing up our land to receive the rain? Because if our land is plowed up and softened by that gentle rain, then when the deluge comes, we'll be ready to receive it. And we'll get everything out of it. That visitation of God, I was, my, my life was changed when I went to that meeting in Chicago. My life was changed when I went to the meetings called the catacombs in Toronto where 2,000 young people gathered every Wednesday night and the power of God came and the earliest people in the praise and worship movement, David and Dale Garrett, came and, and uh, people like Larry Tomczak when he was 23 years old and 24 years old, I mean, C.J. Mahaney, people like that. Everybody who was everybody came. It was a, it was a monumental moment. I was there in those times. It was extraordinary. They changed me. Toronto changed me, even though it left and didn't impact my own nation. But then it prepared me to fight the next battle through the season when all that wasn't happening. Hosea 10 and verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord, that he may come and what? Rain, rain righteousness on you. Now, when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I had a very dramatic personal encounter. I've shared it. I won't go into detail because I've shared it in a number of churches in northern England already. Um, but I had a very dramatic personal encounter. God, every significant thing I've ever done in my life, I have disagreed and argued with God over. And he's drugged me, kicking and screaming. I didn't want to stay in Durham and start a church. I did not want to start the church in, uh, in Canada. Uh, I didn't want to go into the ministry, whatever the ministry is. If I'd, if I'd known Greek, then I would understand it means serving other people, and I certainly wasn't into that, <clears throat> and probably still aren't as much as I should be. So most, every significant thing, and when, you know, I've done, I mean, I've had an argument with God over. And I did not want the presence and power of God, but God mercifully met me. And I had an extremely powerful experience uh, in 1973 in Toronto where I was totally drunk in the Holy Spirit. I had no frame of, you know, I didn't understand what was even happening to me. Um, and it changed my life. But the thing that happened out of it was I began to hear God. I began to know things that were going to happen before they happened. And every time this thing happened that I knew was going to happen, somebody got filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues through the laying on of my hands. First time, I mean, those were wild days. The first time I ever preached, my pastor was a, a, a wild evangelist. He still is at 75 years old. He hasn't much slowed down. And he put me up in an open-air meeting. There were hundreds of people there. And he had single-handedly uh, emptied uh, the witches' coven. They'd all come to Christ, or most of them had come to Christ. And, uh, and, uh, and so the head warlock over that whole area got extremely angry at all of his, you know, work being destroyed. And he heard there was a big open-air meeting that this pastor was responsible for. 
And the only problem was that he put me up to preach. It was the first time I'd ever preached in my life. I was, my knees were knocking already. And this one girl who had been a witch and got saved came up to me just before, you know, I was about to go up on the, onto this bandstand and, and preach. And she said, oh, she said, the head warlock is coming to put a curse on you. Well, as you can, you can judge for yourself whether it worked or not. I guess that's about all I can say. But I don't think it did. <laughs> Those were wild days. And I still like wild days. Better than boring days. But we have to learn to live in both. Now, anyway, the point is, and I want to finish with this, that we can hear from God. It, oh, I, my, I went through a door when I got filled with the Holy Spirit. It was like going through a door un, against my will. And I didn't, had no frame of reference for what was happening to me. But God took me through it where suddenly I was hearing from God. It took me a while to realize it was God. But all these things started happening, which I knew were going to happen, and so on. I eventually realized, like Samuel, listen, you know, speak, Lord, for your servant hear it. I began to realize this was God. Now, I want to suggest to you, I was talking to Jenny Bergen about it yesterday, that hearing from God should be the default position. The problem is, and it's all related to worship, because where do we hear from God more than when we're worshiping and praying, right? So, but our problem is that we think that not hearing from God is the default position, and we hear on an extraordinary occasion, right? So you might have a prophetic word or hear something from God, but that would be not the norm. Well, can I suggest to you we should reverse it? That means when you're sitting in a coffee shop, as I was in London last month, then that's the very, it was a cafe, Nero, as it so happens, that's a great place to prophesy. We had a little meeting right there. I disrupted a restaurant in Michigan with the same M.O., time to prophesy over somebody at the next table. Why not? Have a go. And uh, back in, uh, my friend Ian Galloway was here yesterday from Newcastle, and we we first met, somebody was asking me, we first met uh, back in 35 years ago, or, yeah, it was 35 years ago, uh, in 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 a small conference that I was taking, and it ended with myself praying for him and two other people um, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was a very dry, boring, disastrous conference. I thought I totally failed God. Ninety uh, percent of the people walked out in offense at my teaching. That's never happened to me since. <laughs> no, you can think I'm such a nice guy. Why would they do that? Ninety percent walked out. Well, I have had people walk out since they come in, they walk out. Well, God bless you, the exits are well lit. So, but uh, Ian was one of the only ones that stayed. And I laid hands on him and two other people, and I fled. Two years later, we ran into each other, and he said, I'm the guy that you prayed for that. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, that was, I'm going into my apology, and so on, about how bad it was. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, when you prayed for me, my life was changed. I received the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you hadn't heard the news lately, he went on to plant a magnificent church that I love uh, in the center of Newcastle and out of that, other churches around the world. You know, and that was a draw. I thought I had done, I thought I had totally messed up. But the, I'll tell you what happened was, before I went into that meeting, I prayed. And I said, Lord, these people hate me. What am I supposed to do? And God said, tell them they can all go if they want to, but anyone that wants to stay, you're to pray for them. See, that's what, that's what he told me. I listened to God. Because I listened to God, the rest of it happened. And it unfolded a chain of events involving all sorts of things I had absolutely nothing to do with. But that was a catalyst. What happens? What would happen if you were supposed to hear from God? It was a dry time. It wasn't a glory time. It's just I listened and did what he told me to do. I was in Ian's house just the other day, about a week ago. Sitting looking out the window. I don't know where he was. I can't remember. He was somewhere else. And I saw a man climbing up a ladder to fix the guttering. Good time to prophesy. 
I just went outside and said, excuse me, sir. This is what the Lord, I feel, is saying to you. So that's the default position. Now, I'm not sure what uh, Jeremy's going to say tonight, but my, uh, I'm, I've co-written a this, is a, this is, I'm getting close to my close time, so I, I can't close without, um, without uh, giving an advertising blurb for my forthcoming shorter commentary on the book of Revelation because I get 3% of the cover price <laughs> as disclosing my conflict of interest. And I know Adrian Holloway gives all of his money from his royalties away, but I'm not intending to do that. So, <laughs> God bless him. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Greg Beale, Professor Greg Beale, the man that I've co-written this commentary with, he's the very much the senior uh, man in the partnership, um, has also written a magnificent book called The Temple and the Church's Mission, which uh, I, I, I understand uh, Jeremy is going to allude to tonight. And um, as a matter of fact, I did a seminar on this a couple years ago uh, here. And uh, the, the kind of central theme of this is uh, it is all about the presence of God. He's written 400 pages on the presence of God uh, throughout the Bible. It's the theme of the Bible. The presence of God was in the temple of the garden with Adam and Eve as the priests worshiping him, and etc., etc. Et then it was lost, and then gradually through history was restored. And it, that's where history ends, in, where the Bible ends in Revelation, which is where... Um, uh, Dr. Beale got, got into it, and, and, and he worked backward from Revelation to Genesis and tied the whole of the Bible together. It's incredible. But the gist of it is, in the restoration of the presence of God, that you and I are one. Now, think about it. it the presence of God, which once was throughout the garden, and then we lost it, and then they had a few altars and sticks and stones, and little, little tinges of it. And then they built the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in the tabernacle, and one man once a year could go into that little cubicle, right? And if his heart wasn't right, he got fried. But if his heart was right, the whole nation was safe for another year. What was in that cubicle? It was the glory of God. It was the Shekinah. It was the presence. Oh, it's what we all want. Right? But only one person could access it one, once a year, and it was in that tiny little place. Now, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are one man, one woman, holy of holies. We're portable tabernacles, walking the streets of the cities in which we live. Isn't that an amazing thought? Look in the mirror and tell yourself, you're a holy of holies. You're carrying, a, you may not look by it, like it, but you are. You're carrying around that same presence that was underneath the cherubim. And the whole thing is going to end in magnificent glory. Ezekiel foretold it in chapter 47, the river coming out of the temple and the new Jerusalem. It goes back to the four rivers of, of Eden that are going to be restored with all the precious stones and everything. It's absolutely incredible where we're headed into that heavenly place where not only are we one man, one woman, holy of holies, the whole of creation is going to be permeated and filled with the presence of Almighty God. Holy schmoly, I can hardly wait for it. And I don't have to wait as long as most of you do. So here's the punchline. Don't look for revival somewhere else. Don't even wait till church on Sunday morning. Let revival begin with you. If we had people with a heart like that, we might have permanent revival. I don't know. But what I know is there's nothing to stop you having revival when you go into your prayer room and shut the door behind you because your Father who sees what is in secret is there to reward you with His presence. The rain is here, folks. It may be light. It may be medium. It's not heavy. But it's going to come, and it will come heavy. Will your heart be ready for that day and that time? I, I want one or two more of those kind of seasons before I see the Lord face to face. And I want to be more and more equipped. I tell you what, last year, this is my final close. Last year, uh, I, uh, I got a little bit morose because I was heading toward my 30th, I mean 60th birthday. <laughs> And uh, I got into a little pity party to the point where I was mentally in my mind planning my own eulogy. 
and what people might or might not say about me and who might even turn up. And uh, I went down to a conference and three prophets came to me in this conference who had not consulted with each other and all said the same thing. And what they said was, you are about to enter the most powerful 20 years of your life in ministry. That shook me up. It ruined my pity party. <laughs> I've got 19 years left. And then I might have some, I might run on fumes for a while after that. I don't know. But I've got 19 years to do damage to the kingdom of darkness. I'm running. I'm training my physical body as much as I possibly can. I'm beating up younger guys at the gym. <laughs> That's true. Um, but most of all, I want to, I want to, I want to die. a friend of mine, he just died preaching a few weeks ago. And a man about 85 years old. He preached, he prophesied over somebody, and he collapsed. Carry me out that way. So let's stand. I don't know how to end this meeting. I'll tell you what, let's just be quiet for a moment. Uh, James is going to come up and, and uh, play his gu guitar, not because we need to create an emotional atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to come, but just because he really is a nice guy, plays the guitar well, and, and we want to listen to him. So, no, James is, the, is going to serve us that way. And just allow the presence of God to come. Now, um, I want to tell you, but and I've, I've sort of struggled with God over this, and what is it, Lord, that you're saying? And I felt the Lord said that every one of you could hear better from him. Now, I know in theory we all believe that. All of us could hear better from God than we do. But I'm talking in reality, all of you, you can all prophesy. All of you can hear. All of you can have words of knowledge. All of you can move out in healing. All of you can prophesy. All of you can just hear that voice of God. You don't even have to go up to people and say, thus says the Lord. It's like the young guy I met at the gym, and I took him out for coffee, and he's talking to me all this new age stuff. And, and I, I just had to cut through it. I, I asked the Lord to help me, and God gave me a word of knowledge. And I said to him, your mother and your mother's mother both have the ability to predict the future, don't they? And he looked at me like I hit him in the face and said, how would you know that? But you see, all the New Age crap went out the door, and now he's listening. He went out that room, with the, out of that meeting, reading the reason for God instead of the Celestine prophecy. See, because I heard God. Now, uh, I, what I felt the Lord was saying was that he needs a little bit of faith to work with. You have to come to God with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You don't have to have a lot. The mustard seed was the smallest amount. But you have to have a little. You know why? Because if you don't have faith, you've got unbelief. God can't work with unbelief. Now, don't beat yourself up here. I think probably all of us, you wouldn't have come to a conference like this if you didn't have faith. So if you've got some faith to hear God more, you've got some faith that you can take these things and you're saying, ah, oh, that's all right for him, but not for me. No, 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 no. Go la, 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 la to that. That's the voice of the devil. You can hear God. The book of Revelation indicates that we are a prophetic people. I don't have time to prove it. We are a prophetic people. There are prophets. There are international prophets and so on. I know some. But we are a prophetic people, all of us. And so right now, right now, I'm going to pray a prayer of release. And so you, you just bring the measure of faith that you've got. Forget about the voices that are saying, I can't do that. I'll never hear God that way. Just, just forget that. Tune it out and say, God, I'm desperate for you. Now, make a I invite you while you're doing it to make a commitment to find a secret place to go in and shut the door behind you and worship God for who he is and get desperate for his presence. And God will give you his presence. not wrong to seek his presence. It's just we want his presence in order to give, it, give his love away to be energized, to give his presence away, right? But in the process of encountering the presence of God, you cannot but hear from God. You can't avoid it. Some of you have been hearing from God and you didn't even realize you were hearing from God. You've just, 
You've been getting prophecies and prophetic words for people, but you haven't even passed them on because they thought it was just, you thought it was in your own mind. But it's that place where you're praying and seeking God, and all of a sudden, thoughts occur to you and things occur to you. That's God speaking to you. Lord, speak, for we, your servants, are listening. Open our ears, Lord Jesus, please. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the authority that you have placed in the prophetic mantle of my life, I now release the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19 and 11. That is for every single man and woman and child who believes in Jesus. We carry the spirit of prophecy within us. So, Lord, I release that in Jesus' name. I come against unbelief and cut it off in Jesus' name. Father, I... I thank you by faith, because we live by faith. doesn't matter whether we've got the heebie-jeebies right now, whether we feel something of the presence of God or nothing. It's totally irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. It's by faith. Now just wait before the Lord. Now, you have to do something with what you've received or else that I've defeated my whole point. So what you're going to do is, and I, I, I hate those meetings where people say, oh, turn to the person beside you and tell them you love them or something because, you know, maybe you don't love them very much. I don't know. But anyway, I just don't like it. But I'm going to ask you to grab some other person in the general vicinity of where you are and uh, it can't be preferably not your spouse, somebody that you know but not intimately. And you're all going to prophesy. Don't worry. You don't even have to say, thus says the Lord. You just have to say, this is, what I, this is the thought that's come into my mind. And you can pray prophetically. You can just pray for the person and pray what comes into your mind for them. Now, there's no, we're not putting on a performance. We're not being marked. At the very least, you're showing the compassion and love of Christ by stepping out in faith towards some other person. So take about 10 seconds. Find somebody. Take a hold of them by the hand or whatever. But act appropriately if it's a man and a lady and you're not married to them, please. And then just take a moment to pray prophetically or to speak prophetically, both of you, toward each other. And we'll take a couple minutes to do that, and we'll see what happens. Thank you, Father.